I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And I'm Patrick Pister. And you're listening <laughs> to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Bulwark. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode number 77. I, I had it wrong, Mark. I almost said 76. I can't believe we're getting up to almost a, We're going to be at 100 before we know it. Yep, and we're actually coming to you, not really live, because you'll hear this pre-record, but we're coming to you from the NAPE show floor. Yeah, from the NAPE show floor, and, and who's this Patrick Pister that's, uh, <laughs> that's jumping in at the beginning here? <laughs> so Patrick, welcome to the family. Patrick and I have an additional podcast uh, that's launching very soon on the uh, Oil & Gas Global Network called the Oil & Gas HS&E, Health, Safety, and Environment podcast. And so, Patrick, uh, glad to have you here, here with us on Oil & Gas this week. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, I mean... It's phenomenal. We've uh, we've had we've had a good time getting to know each other so far, and we're about to launch this network. Are you pretty excited about it? I'm uh, very excited. The family's growing, and I'm now part of it. I feel great. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, but we're here at NAPE, the North American Prospects Expo, and uh, I had I had a story here uh, to kick things off from the Houston Chronicle. Hard times can't dim hopes for oil and gas as NAPE opens. Now, Mark, I just got here. You were here yesterday. What have you seen around the show floor? Yeah, so this this is a this uh, uh, story is not quite accurate. I actually talked to the reporter that wrote this, and uh, he's kind of new to oil and gas. Ah, there so, you go. Um, we've had a great turnout. So I would honestly would have been happy if we would have had two thousand people show up yesterday, and we had twenty six hundred people show up yesterday. And surprisingly, James and Patrick, six hundred of those people were walk ups, which means they waited to the last minute, made a decision, saw the value in attending Nate, and came. So. I have high hopes for today. I, I bet we're going to hit three. I think so. I think so. And, and the thing is that that number can sound really low, but you don't even remember that even in the highest uh, years, it's always lower in the summer. Yeah, this is a smaller of the NAEP shows. Yeah, um, just yeah everything in- kind of shuts down. The, the industry organizations, they all take a break for the, for the summer hiatus. Yeah, but you know, it's, I interviewed one of the past presidents of the uh, American uh, uh, Society of Professional Landmen a couple of weeks ago for NAEP. And he told me that although the deal volume is lower, um, when, the, when times are like this, the actual dollar amount is higher. So there's actually more deals being done per dollar than when times are busy um, because people out there looking for good deals and, and the people that have cash are looking to, to buy, buy good properties. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let's get into, uh, into all of our stories for the, for the week. And we're going to kick things off in Iran with Bloomberg talking about Iran's loosening up on foreign money foreign oil money, the Saudis should too. Give us your take, Mr. LaCour. Yeah, so, you know, this is, we've, we've covered this story a good bit in the past, but, you know, this is a, 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 a give and take uh, period of time. So as, they, as Iran goes up in production and as they keep uh, to their sanctions that they agreed to, they'll have more and more money being invested back into the country. Now, there's some limits there, right? There's still issues with uh, the safety there's still issues with corruption. There's still issues with that money working its way through the government back to the people. Um, but they're slowly but surely uh, working their way through that. And you, you, you've had some investors come in and, um, and invest some time and some money. And, and uh, you know, Iraq's up to about two and a half um, a million barrels a day of export. Now, if, um, if Saudi Arabia and Kuwait um, will, will keep or, or not do anything to interfere with this, this will actually keep going up. What's going to be interesting, James and Patrick, though, is what happens when Saudi Aramco takes part of its business and privatizes that. Well, now when it's privatized um, and, and the other part of it's public, the public side is going to be being driven more by public market metrics, which means competition. So even though everybody there is trying to help 
with the Iraq production, when you have a, a publicly traded company that's worried about market share, maybe they'll turn on production in order to try to grab more of that. So it's be an interesting story to follow. Yeah, I'm very interested to see how the uh, geopolitics play out here. And obviously, there's plenty of that going on in that region. Um, next story, I was really fascinated to see this, this headline um, because as, as we've talked about before on the show, America is the, uh, is the greatest land in, in the world for many reasons, but one of it is that we, we are the only nation in the world that the residents own the minerals. And so here's an interesting headline from oilprice.com talking about UK shale gas royalties may go directly to residents. Yeah, this is, this is revolutionary, right? And, and I, I think it's a great thing to do. This is a Theresa May, who's the new prime, new prime minister in the UK. And she has a, a plan that she wants to put together, but basically that she wants the payments, the royalty payments for those minerals to include a portion of it going back to the residents um, that sit on the, on the top side of, of where those minerals are located. So that's how it's done here in the U.S. What's going to be interesting, James, is here in the U.S., the mineral rights are disconnected from the surface rights. So in my case, I own my house and I own the property that's on, but I don't own the mineral rights. The developer uh, bought those and sold those off 20-something years ago. So it's going to be interesting to see how the U.K. Um, implements this. Um, the nice thing, though, about it from an oil and gas developmental point of view, when you have royalty money going to the public in the U.K. for minerals that are under their feet, it just encourages more exploration, more development, um, because people um, pro- um, you know, profit from it. And it's prosperity. That, that mineral rights owner um, all of a sudden is getting a big royalty check. Well, then they can hire people. They can send their people to more schools. Um, they can travel. Um, you know, and all that just uh, kind of spreads the wealth. So this is this is a great thing, I think. Yeah, and it says the maximum potential payouts thirteen thousand and fifty three USD. Um, so not a bad little passive income stream for a, for any family out there in the UK. Yeah, especially whereas before they they got zero zilch. Yeah, they got zero. And so give us an idea as well as um, what's what's the UK's consumption like, and what do they have under their feet? Um, they have a lot of conventional reservoirs. Uh, they do have some shale, which has not been developed. Um, it's questionable in this low crude, crude price environment where, whether it will be developed. Um, they also you know, have part of the North Sea development, which, which is uh, that, that heavy Brent crude that a lot of Europe likes. Once again, though, that's, that's, um, that stuff is all sure that money goes to the government. But on land, they do have some conventional reservoirs. All right, good stuff. Let's take it to uh, the state side with Newfield, a uh, company we've talked about a few times on the show. They're exiting Texas in, in high in upgrading, I guess you could say, in the stack. And I think we just talked about the stack last week or the week before. So what's going on with Newfield? Yeah, so they're making a business decision, right? They're deciding to exit um, that, that part of Texas, which is basically the Maverick Basin. And, and they're selling it, right? They're not walking away from it. They're going to sell it for almost $400 million. Um, and they're, um, they're, they've figured out that that is not a prime um, play for them. And the interesting thing about that, James, is uh, yesterday and today at NAEP, we've actually talked to uh, several operators. In fact, earlier today, we, uh, uh, for our podcast, Packard Out, we had our buddy John Trueblood on. And it's interesting to hear from the operator side that certain plays they have confidence in and they know they can make money in. And literally just a mile or two away, it's a different play that, that operator A doesn't want to operate in, but operator B wants to operate in because he's confident in that geology. So, you know, this is a, just a, a company realizing that it has some acreage that um, it's core competency is not real fitted to develop and they're selling it, but then they're, they're going to take that money and invest in other properties that are, that are their core competency. So it talks about 2016, um, or in third quarter, 2016 covers 35,000 acres of unconventional and conventional assets in Dimmit and Atascosa counties. And basically 
the stack is more conventional, if I remember correctly. The the, the stack more is, conventional or the stack is a horizontal play, right? right? So um it's it it was a conventional uh, resource, you know, back in the seventies or eighties had a bunch of vertical wells. But um, they don't do as much uh, fracking. They do some, but they also do things like asset stimulation. But the biggest benefit there in the stack is just the horizontal, the the new, the, the new technique of horizontal drilling. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I I remember it wasn't so much about fracking, but I guess yeah, they still have to go horizontal up there. Yeah, and you know, you know, that's you know, we we're talking about that earlier. That is a game changer in this industry. The build, the ability to accurately steer a drill bit sideways and stay in that pay zone. Whereas before you punched a hole through the pay zone, and if you, you hopefully you did that a whole bunch of times, you were able to actually produce. That's really interesting to think about. I guess we'll talk about it later when we talk about um, break-even points. But to think about the difference between the cost difference between horizontal and not having between frack, having to frack a well horizontal and not fracking a well, I wonder what the cost difference is on yeah, that. Yeah. So a, a strictly vertical well is dirt cheap. A vertical well with horizontal is very expensive, but think about um, donuts, right? You like donuts? <laughs> Everybody. Um, a conventional well, a vertical well, is like you drilling into a jelly-filled donut. You drill through, you hit the jelly, you're in the pay zone, right? Yeah. A horizontal, um, you like tiramisu? <laughs> you know I don't eat sugar, but I'm going to go with your yeah. analogy. So a horizontal is like drilling to tiramisu, where you drill in and you hit that chocolate layer and you go sideways, so you stay in the chocolate the entire time. So... Two totally different techniques, two different cost structures. Vertical wells are cheap, horizontal wells are expensive, but because they can produce so much more because they stay in that pay zone constant, instead of just punching a hole, they also produce more. So there's there's a balance there. Are you hungry this morning? <laughs> <laughs> you know, now that I've made the donut tiramisu allergy, yeah, my, my t- stomach's starting to growl a little bit. But that's got to say something, though, about the stack's reservoir pressure, though, because if you don't have to frack it, I mean, that says that says a lot. Right, right? that, that there's, there's existing pressure and pressure porosity as well yeah definitely all right let's move over to bloomberg investors have a hundred billion dollars to spend on oil assets no one else wants only in this industry would you see something like that (laughs) hundred billion (laughs) that nobody else wants right (laughs) yeah so what's happened is you're starting to see um, a lot of companies scoop up assets because they believe they've hit rock bottom and and they have hit rock bottoms so you know oil prices are no longer in free fall uh, it's doubtful that I'm going to hit my prediction of $55 a barrel by August, but <laughs> I'm sticking to it. Um, I think we're, I looked, yes, I think we're in the low 40s still, 43 oh, or so. Um, but, but, you know, there's a lot of big investment groups, a lot of people with a lot of cash out there looking at this and realizing that they need to pick up assets. That's what's actually going on here at NAEP. You're having investors and investment groups walk these floors, look at these assets that are available, and figure out which ones they want to invest in. Yeah, so it talks about... Um uh, the fund's focus on energy cumulative raised $113 billion in the last nine quarters. Yeah. And, and as of June 30th, it's been over $2.19 trillion. <laughs> Gosh, dude. And, and so is that pretty much what they're... We talked... It's been a really long time. And I'm just thinking about this. But, you know, we've talked a lot about how the M&A season has passed. Um, but now that things are at their, at their bottoming out point... Are you seeing? Are you? Are you? Do you think maybe in 2017 that M and A activity will pick up? No, it's a the M and A activity will be, will be what it normally is. There's always some churn in oil and gas. M and A activity is one company buying another company. This is a little bit different. This is assets. So this is mineral rights that people are brokering or selling. Mm-hmm. And you have groups of of 
oil investors and oil and gas companies that are pumping cash into this, but you also have companies that are, are a pure investment. Um, you know, companies like a Blackstone um, and EIG, they're investing this and turning to flip it. They don't ever plan to go in operation. They, they, they're, not, they're not operators. They're just looking at it as a, a capital uh, model to, to make some profit. So, Mark, staying with that uh, M&A uh, discussion, do you think these companies in the, in the low crude environment that we're in are selling their assets and will disappear versus the M&A versus a company buying them up? Or are they just buying the assets and want you to go away? Yeah, so you got a good mix. Good question, Patrick. So you have some companies that are cash-strapped, and they're getting rid of B-type assets, so not prime assets, but other assets that would be profitable for them, but in order to keep their, their operations running, they just need the cash. And you have some companies that have, have figured out they made bad investments in assets that are, quite frankly, will never be valuable to them, and they're just trying to exit at the least amount of pain as possible. And then, unfortunately, you're having some companies that are on their last leg, and the last thing they do before they go bankrupt is sell off their assets, and these are prime assets. So you have a mix of all three. Hopefully, we've hit the peak um, last year as far as companies going belly up, and um, you know, a lot of these companies will start moving out from under this load and start moving forward. I was curious to hear your thoughts, Mark, on what do you think this is going to do to acreage costs? Because you talk about people buying up things to flip them, and I immediately think of my mortgage past and, and you know, inflated real estate prices. And then I think about how the Eagleford used to be, what, three, $400 an acre. Is this going to pump acreage prices back up to where they shouldn't be? Or what do you think is going to happen there? No. So... I I think we've hit the bottom. In fact, myself and most experts think we've hit the bottom, which means prices are only going to go one way back up. But that curve back up is not going to be uh, very steep. It's going to be extremely gradual. And I don't think we're getting to overhyped um, uh, royalty rights again ever. Um, I, I think everybody's learned their lesson. Now, I say that the, the reason it happened this time was because of the horizontal fracking element. You had a new well stimulation technique, which made it hard for investors to figure out how much acreage was worth. I don't think we'll get in that situation again unless somebody comes out with another well stimulation technique that hasn't proven itself, but it actually makes a big difference. And then we'll be in the same cycle we were, you know, a year and a half ago. Okay. So barring any other technological advances, we probably pretty stable. Yeah. We'll, we'll be where it needs to be, right? Cause everybody needs to make money. Even the leaseholder doesn't want to sell a lease at an inflated rate and then have the company that bought the lease go belly up, right? He, he wants profit. The leaseholder wants profit. The landman wants to make a profit. The operator makes a profit. They want to go into production. The pipeline company wants to make a profit. And there's checks and balances, and it works its way out, and, and everybody's fine unless you have a disruption in the industry, and then we have this bubble, which is what we just went through. Okay, makes sense. Let's move on over to the Panama Canal. Interesting story. A new trade route for natural gas opens up in Panama. Yeah, it's so funny. I was just talking about this yesterday with somebody. We are talking about LNG prices. So Basically, the Panama Canal was built so long ago that modern super tankers and LNG vessels just can't fit, and modern warships as well. So some of our biggest aircraft carriers can't get through the Panama Canal anymore. And so the government of Panama, with some help, some investor help, has spent the last, I think, six years um, basically widening the Panama Canal, adding some additional locks, some higher horsepower pumps so the cycle times for the locks are quicker. And now they're able to get wider, more modern vessels through there. Uh, our military ships, the super tankers, the big sea can vessels, and the modern LNG ship. So now we can ship LNG much cheaper to Asia Pacific. We don't have to go down all the way down the coast of South America and back up. This is going to be a game changer. This is one of the factors that we've been looking at that um, is allowing us to forecast that LNG is going to re rebound back in 2017. Yeah, it says it's going to take 11 days and one third off the cost. That's pretty. That's pretty nuts. That's huge. When you reduce the cost by one third, you know, but you can still sell it for the same rate. 
business. But <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's that, that. Wow. Yeah, I'm excited to see what happens because we we've been asked that question. I think it was just last week. Yeah, on the Q and A, what's going to rebound first, uh, oil or natural gas, and that might help. Yeah, and I tell you a good sign. You know, we always talk about the super majors, how they don't usually make bad decisions, how uh, you know Shell's turned itself into a gas company. So Shell has already paid ahead of time to move its uh, LNG tankers through the Panama Canal. Shell would not have written that check ahead of time if they didn't know this could be, make big money for them. Yeah, and it talks about that. Officials said they had more than 170 reservations for transit this year, mostly for so-called new Panamax um, cargo carriers that couldn't fit through the old canal. So yeah, it's huge. Then, yeah, the other thing, too, is, is um, you know, China, you better watch out. We can get our seventh fleet over there really quick now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The Marine comes out. The Marine comes out to play. All right. Uh, I'm going to move away from that one real quick. Chesapeake Energy, um, you know, I used to live up in up in Fort Worth, Cowtown, and so they have a picture here of, of uh, my, my dear beloved uh, old hometown, as George, uh, George Strait used to say. <laughs> Uh, do you ever think about Fort Worth anymore? And they're exiting, Ches- Chesapeake is exiting the Barnett Shale with a whimper. And I remember, I've talked about this a lot on the show lately, about driving around Fort Worth and seeing all these different, um, you know, rigs and production facilities and everything. And so what what's going on with Chesapeake yeah, leaving so, Fort Worth? Yeah, so there's a bit of a backstory here. So remember how we talked earlier about how a lot of the upstream providers are in these long-term contracts with pipeline companies? Yeah. In fact, there's two court cases that could fundamentally change the midstream business in the U.S. depending on which way they go. Yep. This is what's driving this. So um, um, Chesapeake is, is basically um, trading its assets um, in North Texas to an equity firm, a private-backed equity firm. And they're not receiving any cash for this. What they're doing is they're able to get out of their agreement, long-term agreement they made with Williams Partners, the pipeline company. So see how, how from a business point of view, if Chesapeake signed an agreement they see is not um, profitable for them anymore, and they're trying to figure out how to get out of it, instead of going to court, they just take these assets which are under agreement and transfer them to somebody else who now has the legal obligation to meet those that um, contract uh, contractual obligations with Williams. I'm glad that you said that because that really... Uh, I don't know, paints the rest of the color into that picture that we've been talking about, about these court cases. And I haven't really thought through or been able to really understand how things are usually done. And that's how they've always been done. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, I'm not privy. It wasn't privy for any of those contract negotiations. I suspect what happened when the frack fields were blowing and going, it was $100 a barrel, that these operators were willing to sign ridiculous contracts, you know, not do their due diligence, not do a contract that makes fiscal sense for their shareholders, just get some type of transport in place because they know they had to bring it to market because they have all this cash tied up in these, all these wells are drilling. They got to get that cash back. And then what happened when the price dropped, they were paying way too much for transport, but they were locked in contractually and it was hurting their business. And that's, that's what this is. So, but uh, Chesapeake, instead of trying to sue and get out of a contract they signed, they just um, traded those contractual obligations, which I think is a better solution to this type of problem. And it, Williams Partners is coming in the story again. And I'm sorry. I said, all right. And William Williams Partners is coming in again. Yeah, coming in because they're involved in this. And evidently, the the private equity group in Texas was willing to take that financial responsibility um, for, for whatever reason. It made fiscal sense to them. So, it, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it kind of looks like a win win fair buy for Chesapeake, for the private investment group, and for Williams. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. 
All right, let's talk about break-even costs because I alluded to it earlier, and we've talked about break-even costs. I don't think it's it's overly discussed on the show, but it's definitely a, something that we hit on every now and again. But this story, I, I really wanted to uh, pull up this one because it really goes deep into what is the real cost of oil, and I thought it was good for an update these days. Yeah, so this is actually, if you get a chance, people, you need to look at this graph that's in this article that James has. It's not totally comprehensive, um, it looks like it's, um, it's a mix of North America and then some uh, international drilling. But basically, uh, the cheapest oil to get out of the ground is conventional reservoirs, and whether that's here in the Middle East. And that's the reason the Middle East is so blessed that they have such a huge amount of conventional reservoirs. They're, they really don't have a lift cost. They, they pump a gallon of seawater in the ground, and a gallon of oil comes out, and that seawater is basically free. When you move over to North America, and our conventional reservoirs are almost that cheap as well. But then you move over into um, a lot of the shale plays, uh, especially the highly prolific ones. And those are the next most expensive oil. And then you keep working on and you get, you know, um, um, the uh, deep water in Brazil, the Canadian oil sands. And then you actually get into um, a lot of the, the oil that's in Africa and, and in parts of Europe. Shallow water are some of the most expensive oils. So if, if you look at what oil is expensive to actually get out of the ground, it will tell you where the business is going to go. So the business is going to stay centered around conventional reservoirs. The business is going to stay centered around the uh, um, offshore parts of the world that are not very expensive, that aren't environmentally uh, um, you know, huge. Things like you know the North Sea is so expensive in those fields that are depleted. Brazil, the water is so deep and the completions are so technically complicated. You know that's not where oils would come from. The oils would come from the, the shelf in the Gulf of Mexico, conventional reservoirs around the world, uh, and and then our highly productive frac plays, um, and then. And as the future comes along and we get new technology and new process, some of these more expensive oils may actually become cheaper. There's, I actually read um, a study, James, um, just the other day. You know, right now the Canadian oil sands are extremely expensive because basically you don't, you don't drill it, you mine it. And you mine the sand and you have to heat it or you heat the ground, and that's an expensive way. And there's actually a, a couple of uh, grad students from MIT has figured out a way to use a biological enzyme. It's literally a living bacteria that they can drop in the oil sands that will separate that oil, the adhesion from the oil to the sand, so it will then pool. Well, if they can pull this off, the Canadian oil sands may become dirt cheap. Wow. Right? Because of technology. Yeah, so we'll see where this goes. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Patrick, because you've done a lot of work offshore. What have you seen in terms of efficiency gains in your, in your time working offshore? Yeah, as, <clears throat> as, as far as the cost of working in somewhere like, uh, like West, West Africa, you have a lot of a lot of regulatory um, environments that they just make it so difficult. Um, when Macondo happened, a company I was working for was having a rig that was supposed to work in the Gulf of Mexico. There was a moratorium, so all right, we'll send it to Libya. Well, there was a there's a some moratorium against Libya, so it was going to go to West Africa and and to go into Angola. It was a six month visa process just so your guys could get into the country and get on the rig you were sending there. So it's it's hard to say that it's just the, the geological effects of, of getting the oil out of the ground. The, the political environment and the regula regulation and the cost of doing business in some of these regions, that's where a lot of this cost comes from as well. Wow. You probably, I don't know if you could put a number to that, Mark, but I mean, as far as overall operating costs, I wonder how much regulation hurts this, this, this part of the industry. So there's a balance. So here in Europe, I would say the balance is probably where it needs to be as far as looking at the safety of people, um, making sure that you're environmentally responsible and have regulations. But, you know, some parts of the world, like Brazil, where they force you to have local content, 
it, it, it probably increases the cost of operation by at least 50%. Angola had a local content rule that if you wanted to replace an Angola Just worker... Just real quick, define that local content. Oh, sorry. Local content means if you're going to work in that country, you have to use local suppliers, local manufacturers, local vendors, and ideally local rig hands. So they want their, their national uh, citizens to get jobs. Most countries will let you get out of that if you can't find these workers. So your, your education requirements need to be a certain level, your technical expertise is a certain level. But when you talk about roustabouts or utility hands, the guys that are kind of entry level under the rig, you're going to have to put um, Angolans, Venezuelans, Brazilians on board if they have local content. Now, I do remember when I was working in Angola, we were able to put an American on in lieu of a local content Angolan but they had a four-to-one shadow requirement. So if you had an American that should be an Angolan, you can have that American, but you have to pay four more Angolans to sit on the beach that will never come offshore, that will never work, and may not even exist, but you're paying the agent that has the employment uh, HR company. It's really interesting because any time that you hear about American companies or any, any really oil and gas companies going into any, I guess, foreign land, if you will, it's pretty easy to hear the complaint that they're not employing local talent and, and automatically have the, the knee-jerk reaction like, oh, they're, it's, this is big oil being evil. But when you hear about it from that side of things, I mean, it's kind of like this whole chemical thing that we've talked about before on the show. It's really easy to name one chemical and make it sound evil. And this is, I see sort of an analog here where you can make that one statement and not know the full context. Yeah, and I, I want to clarify as well, it's not just uh, developing nations or what we think of as third world countries. When I was working in Australia, the uh, Australian unions over there had a huge campaign against Chevron because they were hiring outside of the country. But they were hiring outside of the country because, not because they couldn't find Australians to do the job, but because the Australians didn't want to live on the West Coast. The sexy part of Australia is the Gold Coast. It's over on the East Side. They were paying, they were paying not, not Chevron, uh, companies were paying truck drivers an $18,000 signing bonus if you would move to the west, west coast of Australia and drive trucks for oil and gas and mining and every elder industrial, which is, which is on, in Western Australia. And they just couldn't find people. It's interesting. Hey, well, we're talking about a lot about investing and in, in people and how much cost could, could be taken on in terms of, uh, you know, regulation but let's talk about a, a more positive side of investing when it comes to it says apito and i guess we'll know what that stands for in a second sees increase in oil gas investments in safety and training and this is your sweet spot patrick because you're our our resident hse expert so let's talk through this story yeah not just working in hsc but working offshore uh opito that is the gold standard the international standard for safety and training so whenever you get your your hewitt which is Helicopter underwater egress training, which means that the helicopter goes down, they train you how to get out of a helicopter that's underwater. The, the setups they have nowadays are, are fantastic. They drop you in the water, the whole rig spins upside down, they've got divers that help you unbuckle your seatbelt, knock out a window, and, and swim to the surface. Now, like I said, Opedo is the international standard, and most people have Opedo on a, on a license to go offshore, uh, a certificate, a training they did, and, and never really think about what it means, but um, OPEDO actually stands for the Offshore Petroleum Industry Training Organization. Like I said, they're, they're the gold standard in offshore safety training. Um, this article is, is great, and it's talking about the increase in investment they're seeing, not from just them, but from 
companies that are sending their guys offshore, they're actually increasing the amount of training they're doing. They're, they're training these guys up. Um, they, they make a correlation in this article saying that the downturn uh, between 86 and, eight, and 99 is when they, when they were looking at the study. The, the downturn in oil prices back then had a, a direct impact on safety incidents. They shot through the roof because you weren't spending money on, on safety and, and developing these, your employees. And that's not happening nowadays. This downturn in the market is just as bad, if not worse, in the 80s. But companies are still spending money on training. They still think HSC, health, safety, environment, is a valuable part of their job to keep their guys operating safe and efficiently. It's, it's, a, it's a great article. I want everybody to go check this out. Yeah, that, that seems to make a lot of sense because the people who, who have, the companies who have had to lay off people, they don't want to. And the people that they have left, they want to keep them safe and they want to keep them working. Absolutely. And you, you, if you're going to send people offshore, it's irresponsible if you're going to send them without the proper training. Now, if it's just a day pass because you're having somebody go do an inspection, there's one offs that every company gets by with. But you really need to send them to, you know, their firefighting, their lifeboatmen, their uh, helicopter underwater EGIS training, all of these, these trainings that nobody thinks about. But when an emergency happens, you want it to be second nature. You want people to go to their stations. You want people to know how to get out of a helicopter under their, under their seatbelts. Um, and it gets, it gets extreme. When I was working in the Black Sea, we had full dry suits on. It was an hour, hour and a half flight out to the helicopter. So you got this rubber chafing on your neck the whole time. But you know you're doing it because if something happens, if the worst happens, you want to be as safe and prepared as possible. Mark, being that you work in the training world uh, to some extent, but not, not in this, this particular um, instance, but uh, do you know anybody who does this kind of training out there in the field? Uh, there's actually quite a few big companies that do this type of training on the field. Um, uh, PetroSkills is the first one that pops in my head. And there's a bunch of specialized out there. But yeah, no, Modal Point doesn't do um, cold water survival training. <laughs> <laughs> no, nowhere near close to that. Nowhere near close to that. But you do uh, free market survival training, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, free market prosperity training. There you go. All right. Um, Christy Craddock announces Texas Oil Field Relief Initiative. Um, I skimmed this a little bit, and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts before I formulate mine, Mark. Yeah, so this is government doing what it should do. You have other state governments trying to t- increase their tax load on oil and gas industry in this low crude price environment, and the Texas state government is going, hey, we know you're hurting, so let's make things easier for you. Let's try to reduce your costs from a regulatory point of view, and that's what they should be doing. Um, we've talked about it before in a show where the controlling agency in Texas, and there's a historical reason for this, is the Railroad Commission. And the Railroad Commission in Texas is doing what it can to help make oil and gas companies' jobs easier. And James, you know what happened two Thursdays ago? I bet you and I, I don't think you and I talked about. No, we speaking didn't talk of energy, about it. Guess what state has just... Oh, yeah, been, we talked oh, about it. We, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we talked about it. Yeah. It was solar, man. It's solar. So, so we are now lead the country in solar and in wind and in oil and gas. And here's our Railroad Commission trying to make sure we stay ahead of everybody else with our oil and gas industry. Yeah, that's, that's really, really, really good stuff. Because when I read the headline, I'm like, oh, we're not coming with corporate welfare, are we? No, we're, we're actually making it what the way things the way they should be. Yeah, so what they're doing is they're taking some of the processes now that oil and gas companies have to go through from a legal point of view, and they're making them easier. They're putting them online. There's less paper. And that, that they're spending their money to do that. I mean, I, I think that's how our state government should be, not just with oil and gas, but for all industries. You know, Texas is probably the top, if not one of the top states for business, especially small and medium business in the country. And it's because our state recognizes the impact that small business makes to the prosperity for everybody. 
Yeah, it's a really good point, and I'm going to put it in the show notes. And I, you're talking to him here in, in just a few minutes, but Alan Gilmer just put out a uh, from Drilling Info just put out a really interesting graphic yesterday or two days ago showing that in in concrete numbers how this industry is not quote unquote big oil and that over 90% of the oil and gas that's produced in America is produced by an average of companies an average of 12 employees or less yeah we're we're in a room full of those companies right now mhm absolutely all right let's uh that, that's it for that's it for the regular we got the uh the weekly onion and the reason i found this one mark and i don't know if you saw it in the show notes that i put together in evernote but i came across this article talking about when people thought the on- the onion was real, <laughs> right? right, sharing it on social media, and um, so the onion headline here is: New study finds eighty five percent of Americans don't know all the dance moves to the national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a decent headline, and then um, I'll put it in the show notes: the image of of these these people just going nuts that people don't actually know these dance moves. I think it's similar to the Macarena, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Something like that. So we'll get that in the show notes. All right. And then Bulwark has another winner. But this time, I I, I don't know that I know Kevin. So Kevin Hyatt, operations manager at Savage, savageservices.com, is our winner this week. And I'm going to have to ask him to reach out to to me or you, Mark, because have you ever talked to Kevin? Uh, no, actually, I don't know, Kevin, which is kind of rare. It seems like a lot of our winners, one of us knew. Yeah, one of us knew. So it's been, I think, the first time in a few weeks we don't know them. But um, what did he win, Mark? So, Kevin, you are now the proud owner of a Bulwark long-sleeve two-tone base layer, so FR clothing. You know, Bulwark's been a manufacturer of FR clothing for over 45 years, and the, they're the world's largest manufacturer of FRs. So if you need size 207 or size 2, <laughs> Um, they got you covered. If you want them in bright pink or bright red or bright blue, they got you covered. You need it delivered anywhere in the world, they got you covered. So if you, uh, your crew, your company needs FR clothing, look really hard at Bulwark. Um, you know, we're very proud to have them as a sponsor of our show, but we don't take just anybody. And like I said, they're, they're the world's largest supplier of FR clothing in the oil and gas industry. So Kevin, you lucked up. Uh, if anybody else out there wants this really cool clothing, and even if you work in the office, if you've never in the field, I promise you, your, your office mates would be jealous if you have FR clothing. It's really easy to enter. Uh, you enter, uh, we draw one lucky winner a week, and we announce their name on the air. Yeah, so it's bulwark.com forward slash podcast, B-U-L-W-A-R-K.com forward slash podcast. Do you have anything to say about Bulwark, Patrick? Because I, I know that you've been out there in the, in the field possibly working with them. I actually did want to talk about, well, specifically their giveaway here. One thing people don't think about is if, you, if there's an emergency, if there's a fire alarm, um, when you're on a remote location, so you're in your bunk and you're in a T-shirt and shorts, you need to have a long sleeve, hopefully long pants that you can just throw on and hand out the door. Because if you run into an area where you have to go through flames, smoke, and heat, you need to have full, as covered as uh, close to 100% skin coverage as possible. So when I was on when I was on rigs and at lifeboat drills, I told every, told everybody have a long sleeve shirt tied to your life jacket. When you grab your life jacket on your way out, you've got a long sleeve shirt there you can throw on if you run into a situation where you're going to hit fire. Also, if you're out in, in a lifeboat for hours or days on end, you want to be protected from the sun. So as far as a giveaway, I think this is great. If you work in an office where you wear a polo to, polo to work, keep a long sleeve shirt in your, in your drawer and on the, on the clothes rack. Just have something in case there's an emergency. Yeah. Yeah, and we've talked about this before as, as far as having a cultural buy-in from the top down. And, and even if 
you know, the C-suite or whoever isn't going out and it's good for them to, to even have this stuff around to show that they're bought into that culture. Yeah. If, if you've got all the, all the PPE and it's, it's pristine and it doesn't have any dirt on it, that's fine. As long as you're, as those, those C-suite guys are putting it on when they, when they need to and showing that they, they believe their own, uh, their own HSC talk. All right, cool. So yeah, it's the Bulwark two-tone uh, base layer and it's bulwark.com forward slash podcast. Events on deck, Mark LaCour. Next week, you and I, my friend, are headed out to uh, San Antonio. Is that correct? Yep, we're headed out to San Antonio where I'm going to play Cameraman because James is speaking in front of the uh, Tipro Summer Conference. Yeah, so the Texas Independent Petroleum uh, uh, and Royalty Owners, or Producers and Royalty Owners Association, um, I'm super excited, basically going to be talking about what the industry needs to do to communicate our message of the truth about oil and gas and energy in a digital world, in the digital world that we live in today. So I'm super excited. If you, if you haven't signed up or, or registered yet, there's still time. Um, I'll have the link in the show notes, but you can also go to tipro.org, T-I-P-R-O.org, and you can look at their meetings and events you know, tab there. But yeah, August 17th and 18th at the Hyatt Hill Country Resort in San Antonio. And if you're, uh, if you're going, hit me up on Twitter. It's Mark underscore LaCour. Um, cause I need somebody to help me with camera work. <laughs> so <laughs> I need some help and this way we can hang out and I'll introduce you to people. Um, but you know, hit me up on Twitter if you're going, you know, I could use 10 or 15 minutes of help to get stuff set up. Yeah. That, that thanks for coming out for that, Mark, because I definitely want to get this, get this documented. It should be a great presentation and panel discussion. And if you're not able to make it to San Antonio, we have an event for you at the Weston Denver downtown. It's Intercom's oil and gas conference happening uh, the 14th through the 18th next week. Yeah, so Intercom's a great event. I'm not going to actually be able to make it, but if you want to hear some of the top oil and gas investment professionals in the world talk about what's going on in the industry, what the future is bringing for the global oil and gas industry, go check out Intercom. This is a think tank, um, and it's, it's a great way to find out what some of the top people in the industry are predicting is coming in the future. Yeah, they've got quite a few serious uh, companies sponsoring, and then a whole bunch of really great, um, uh, really great speakers. And they even got webcasts available. So maybe if you're international and want to check that out, uh, get the link in the show notes. And then the first Friday Q and A is a few weeks away, but it's uh, it's never too early to submit your questions. Talk to us about it, Mark. Yeah, so if you want to know anything about the industry, we may not have the answer, <laughs> and you can stump us, which would be make everybody laugh at me. But um, anything about the industry, reach out, um, uh, give us a question, um, uh, stick your earbuds in your smartphone, record an audio uh, question, uh, email it or text it to James. And if we answer your question on your air, we'll get a big shout out. It's, it's actually become our most popular segment of the show. Um, so we'd love for you to participate. Yeah. So if you want to, you can go to tribrocket.com forward slash QA and you can see the, the, the form field there. Although I guess all of these links are going to be changing up pretty quickly, right, Mark? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens <laughs> the immediate future is bringing. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. Um, and so we've got one new review. we got a couple new ratings. Um, I'll go ahead and read this one. It's from Angela K. Dang, an essential tool for oil and gas pros, five stars. James and Mark, thank you so much for all of your hard work and passion in creating this podcast. I discovered the show while I was in grad school at the Colorado School of Mines. Awesome. Colorado School of Mines finding us. And it was uh, a welcome break to all the technical information I was bombarded with on a daily basis. Now as a new grad engineer in the Permian Basin, 
oil uh, OGTW. I love it. She's using <laughs> using our our short our, our shorthand here. OGTW accompanies me on my trips in and around the field. I urge everyone from students to seasoned professionals to listen to this podcast because the oil and gas uh, oil and gas is a multi <laughs> oil and gas industry is a multidisciplinary one. Understanding how how your role, whether it's engineering, geoscience, land, or law, fits in the bigger picture adds value and meaning to your work. Cheers. Man. Yeah, great review. <laughs> great review. There's another person I need to hire to do some copy for me. Um, so thank you very much for that, Angela. And if anybody else wants to leave their review, which we cannot thank you enough for, you can go to troprocket.com forward slash TWReviews, troprocket.com forward slash TWReviews. That'll take you straight to the iTunes store to leave your review. Anything to add on that, Mark? No, it's just, uh, folks, we're uh, growing. We're growing by mega growth. I mean, it's the reason Patrick's sitting here. We've got other shows. So um, we're glad you're along for the ride. Uh, leave us a review. Check out our other shows. Check out the Global Oil and Gas Network. Um, um, you know, we're going places. Yeah, we're, we're going, taking you with us. Yes, definitely. And so if it, you, you just mentioned the Oil and Gas Global Network. And that's a good lead into the last thing we have to always talk about, which is the LinkedIn group. And if you're looking for our LinkedIn group, it's not called Oil & Gas This Week. It's called Oil & Gas Global Network, or you can just search OGGN or go to TriRocket.com forward slash LinkedIn, and, and that'll take you there. Patrick, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. And uh, we should be going live this week with the Oil & Gas HSE podcast. So if your listeners want to check us out, we uh, will be in the iTunes store very shortly. They have to check check y'all out. <laughs> good good job with the plug, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're a, you're a pro already. You're a man. pro. You're a pro already. Love it. All right. So if you want to get any of the any of the uh, the links in the show notes to the events or any of the stories we talked about, you can go to tryrocket.com forward slash tw77. This is episode 77. Tryrocket.com forward slash tw77. You can get all of the links and everything we talked about right there. And if you want to share the show, which we strongly encourage you to do, go to tribrocket.com forward slash share LI to share on LinkedIn forward slash share TW for Twitter and forward slash share FB for Facebook. Uh, Patrick, you're going to have to sit sit out on the outro because I don't know how to freestyle this one. But so, Mark, you ready to get out of here? Yeah, let's go have some fun at Nate. So, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. Y'all be safe out there. Let's go. We're rolling. All right, let's do it.